Thank you, com comrade. Lock, I got him. No. <laughs> Out of Tonsilla Files, another episode of Escaping the Cave at escapingthecave.com. Fuck Twitter. Hi there. It is January the 28th, 2020, very early in the morning, back on this nighttime schedule. I am far more productive as a vampire than any other way. It's always been that way. It's odd, I must say. Hope you're having a, a good week. How much television have you been watching? How, how much news coverage have you been watching this week? <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? I haven't watched anything. I take that back. I did watch about five minutes of the impeachment trial last week. Adam Schiff. I feel like I should have an Igor drop right about here. Walk this way, master. Those eyes. They creep me out. I keep waiting for him to either either bust into an Igor line from Young Frankenstein's what I'm talking about here for you young folks. Go Google it. It's funny. Marty Feldman. <laughs> Have you ever seen Love at First Bite? It's a Dracula movie from, I think, 1979. George Hamilton and uh, Artie Johnson, who was famous for being on Laugh-In. He had this uh, Nazi character who just turned his head. Sometime during the skit, he would say, very interesting. Well, anyway, he was Renfield in the Love at First Bite movie from 1979, and he had this <laughs> sort of laugh. It's actually a really good, it's one of my best impressions. I don't do a lot of impressions. That's one of my better ones. That, I keep watching Adam Schiff, waiting for him to bust into that laugh. <laughs> Collusion. I got to say, I don't have to say, I'm going to say, and then I'm going to move on from this. I am, am suffering from Adam Schiff overdose. I don't want to see those creepy eyes of his ever, ever, ever again. This trial is just ridiculous from what little I've gathered, right? I mean, Republicans now, they're all talking about uh, bringing Joe Biden and Hunter Biden in, trying, I don't know, whatever. I'm more concerned with the discourse that you see taking place on the interwebs. That's what I'm concerned about. I'm, I'm more concerned about what people are doing to themselves than what's going on in, that, in, in the Senate chamber. We all know how this is going to end. I'm more concerned about the fever. I'm paying attention to that just a little bit. I'll tell you, it still blows my mind. Poof. That everybody seems to automatically think that both whatever Trump's been accused of and the Burisma, Burisma, however you say it, that scandal with the Bidens, how these two things are somehow mutually exclusive. You know, it's not somehow against the law of friggin' physics that Biden could have soiled himself on Burisma and at the same time, that Donald Trump abused his office to expose it in order to help his campaign. Those two things can exist in the same damn universe. I promise they could have both happened. You wouldn't know it, though, would you? I mean, it's technically possible that everybody who's <laughs> commenting, throwing their opinions out into the uh, 
internet ecosystem that you're all right until it comes to the point where you need to proselytize and litigate for your chosen damn team. And then it's like watching Saul Goodman masturbate in front of Johnny Cochran on an Albuquerque park bench until the whataboutisms start to bukkake everyone in the thread. I'm sorry if I'm being mean. Don't take it personally. It, to be fair, if you're doing this, you are far, far, far from alone. This is a, a really good time-saving suggestion. Consider doing this, friend. Why not just post an elephant or a jackass into these threads and save the time? I mean, would your regurgitated propaganda recitations, would they require anything more to be completely understood? Would everyone know where you stood? Where you stand? Who you stand with? If you just posted an elephant or a donkey. Does it really require anything else to be completely understood? Does everyone have to endure more clever rewording and endless rationalizing of already universal opinions coming from one side or the other? You don't need it. Just a donkey, just an elephant. Move on. Go find some kitty pictures. I... <laughs> <laughs> Also this weekend, you're going to like this. I was watching an old episode of uh, Silver Spoons. Remember that show? Ricky Schroeder. It was kind of big, a mediocre hit, I guess, in the 1980s when I was in high school. I used to watch it. It's dumb. (laughs) It's really dumb now that I watch it. But uh, I I don't want you to judge me for watching this thing. I'm not even 100% sure why I was watching it over the weekend. I found it. I was scrolling through the channels and, oh, there's Aaron Gray. There's Ricky Shorter. This is Silver Spoons. I think I'll watch. And uh, in this episode, though, uh, Ricky Schroeder, I think his name was Rick in the show, actually, and him and his uh, perpetually erect friend, they're trying to figure out where they're going to college. And they ended up at a college that was infested with nerds. Now, if you're of a certain age, if you're old enough, you remember how nerds were portrayed in the 1980s. <laughs> Not well. And I'm watching this and I'm thinking to myself, self, because that's what I call myself a self. I said, self, by the year 2025, these shows, this one included, this episode included is going to be designated a hate crime and banished to oblivion with those offending Looney Tunes cartoons. It's brutal, especially with nerd culture, the way it is today. How can they not be designated hate crimes by the woke flake crowd soon enough? It's coming. You heard it here first. Hashtag stay woke. Now, you can still find the old racist Looney Tunes cartoons in obscure places around the internet. Uh, But I'd like to know, personally, why they're being scrubbed from the historical cultural record like the Confederate statues were attempted to be. No one's saying, me included, I'm not saying they should be returned into, you know, heavy Saturday morning rotation, but deleted like they never existed? They're pretty hard to find. Good luck buying them. It makes no sense to me beyond, you know, the who controls the past controls the future thing. But even that, if you think about it, go a layer deeper here. Even that makes no tactical sense. I mean, look how far society has come since those cartoons were made. Nobody batted an eye at those cartoons 80, I don't know, 60, 80 years ago, however long it was. So yeah, look how far society's come. And when that was halfway out of my mind's mouth, it hit me. 
It hit me. Look how far society's come. Having these old cultural artifacts in plain sight may, just may, remind people that liberalism was winning. That the path forward, while it was bumpy, you know, was slow, plagued by frequent switchbacks along the way, but it was steady. It was moving forward. When those cartoons were made, Barack Obama was impossible. Kamala Harris was impossible. Cory Booker was impossible. Hillary Clinton was impossible. So why are we purging them from the record? Because that reminder of how far societies come might deflate the contemporary woke narrative that everything is horrible and unless there's a socialist revolution right now, these intolerably racist and patriarchal conditions will never, ever, ever improve. That's the narrative now. And if you were to go back, if you have a, you know, a random reminder showing up on people's television screens of how that bad things were not that long ago, that it might sort of just poke a hole in that narrative, just a small leak in that doomsday contemporary narrative that we like to hear all the time. See, watching Bugs Fucking Bunny, (laughs) Bugs Fucking Bunny circa 1943, it tells a very different story than what we hear today. The story is an arcing story of progress. It's imperfect, but still significant national and human progress. Erasing artifacts like these cartoons, you know, the Confederate monuments, also helps supplant rational historical context, rational historical context with uh, the propaganda narrative of choice. You think things suck right now, ladies? Again, here's your obligatory disclaimer that, you know, yes, I know they're imperfect. I get that. But go watch a few hours of random programming from the 70s and 80s. I dare you. What was considered acceptable treatment of women in primetime programming back then, uh, it might make your woken heads explode. What's unfortunate, though, is, is that it's possible, if not likely, that the demand for a revolutionary lurch towards some fantastical social justice heaven on earth may, indeed, prove to unravel, unravel some of that hard-earned progress that's been made. You think I'm wrong, do you? You want to drop some truth on me? Okay, fine. Maybe you attribute uh, Trumpism, Brexit, the rise of far-right national politics in Europe to be part of the coronavirus. Is that it? Over the course of the last year or so, I've said a few times that I consider Ralph Waldo Emerson's self-reliance and John Stuart Mill's On Liberty to be independent thought manuals. How to critically think about things. Now, their works, these books, the pamphlet, uh, were written in another time. In the 19th century, uh, the world pretty much ended at the edge of town, right? You might take a ride from, you know, Concord to Boston or something like that, but your life was pretty much your local community. There was not any real National press, at least as we understand it today anyway, and even radio back then couldn't even be conceived. It was all local, all organic, man, almost 100%. Uh, The closest thing they had to an informational industrial complex uh, was the church. That's where everyone gathered to get the good word every Sunday. From place to place, 
Now, the delivery would vary, the message as well to some degree, but the show everyone watched each and every week was Jesus and Friends, right? I've come to believe that while these ideas are solid in these books, they were much easier to employ in the 1800s than today simply because their minds were not being bombarded by endless current events data the way our minds are today. Independent political and social thought was simpler because one did not have to sift through mountains of facts and pseudo-facts. A person could sit down, he could read, he could think, and maybe even write, again, I'm going to use that word, organically. His mind was his. The amount of data coming in was something he could probably handle much better than we can today. Maybe in the 1800s, a better comparison uh, would be the uh, occasional atheist. All right, A better comparison to today. Uh, the atheist back then was the one who had to muster the courage to confront indoctrination and groupthink. Uh, the established dogma of the community. And over the last hundred years, since electronic media shook the informational foundations, uh, with its immediacy, collective nature of consumption, all of that has changed. The church has been replaced by the glowing Christ of computer screens, smartphones, TV sets. We do not congregate with each other in church anymore. We congregate around various LED screens. Our preachers today, our contemporary preachers, in comparison to the 1800s, are influencers, politicians, pundits. Our community churches are virtual echo chambers. Our religions are ideologies. In the 19th century, atheism was an act of cultural rebellion. Atheists, even the impious, were scorned, gossiped about, ostracized, even occasionally attacked. Think about this. If you had a kid in the 1800s and your kid had a friend whose parents didn't go to church, you might not send your kid to play with that kid. Don't want them around those people. They don't go to church. They don't read the good book. It was a thing back then. That was a thing in the 20th century, for Christ's sakes. That's how big of a deal. That's how big of a deal being an atheist, being a non-believer was in the 19th century. Being godless 100, 200 years ago was an act of social bravery. So it is to the political atheist in 2020. Now, you may raise an eyebrow at that, but try not to twitch too hard, all right? I've been over a lot of this. Jacques Ellul talked about how being a political atheist, it would sort of go against that innate human need for social validation and to belong to a group. And it went far beyond that. I have the episodes back there from last year. You need to go listen to those. I'm not going to rehash everything here. Do your work. <laughs> Do your homework so you understand what I'm talking about. But I'll recap a little bit of it here. He also said that the political, I don't know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, the politically agnostic would also suffer psychological effects of this. No sense of belonging, as I just talked about. Also confidence. I'll get to this in a little bit. And also the sense of being ostracized, just as that atheist back in the 1800s would be ostracized because he didn't attend church and fellowship with the rest of the community, the 2020 political atheist has a sense of feeling ostracized from these competing groups. 
And then he wrote this in 19, what, 1964. There was no bearing. There's no beacon. Where am I supposed to be in relation to these other people? Where do I belong here? That is a psychological effect of withdrawing yourself from today's, at least, political binary system. And then um, Gustav Le Bon, I love this guy. I haven't gotten into his book on this podcast yet. I will. His book on the mob. Oh, buddy. He's talking about the mob and how it's just dumb. The mob is inherently, inherently stupid. So not only are you dealing with these psychological effects, you've also got to deal with, I guess, stragglers from these dumbed-down political mobs. A little bit, I, I would say, I would actually venture to, to postulate that you would deal with that effect back in the 1800s from people who went to church. All the, It's a congregation. It's a herd of people engaged in the same kind of groupthink. When they decide that they want to challenge someone who's chosen not to be part of that, they're not doing that from an intellectually superior place. They're part of a group, part of a mob. They're dumb. If you are one of the very few people who are legitimately detached from the political dialectic of 2020, and you've had conversations with people fully entrenched in the propaganda on the left or the right, if they've completely bitten into the apple, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. If you put any original creative thought into these issues, and you start to have some kind of a conversation with a proselyte of one brand or another, you understand completely the stupidity that I'm talking about. A lot of times, like, huh? How are the, I know you're smart. I know you're smart. How are these words coming? Oh, they're not your words. <sighs> this is political ejaculate dripping from your chin. These aren't your thoughts. You know what I'm talking about. If you've done this and if you haven't, you know how they say you're playing poker? Eh, nah, I won't go there. Don't offend the listener, Todd. Don't offend the listener, Todd. Don't offend the listener, Todd. I keep I, People keep telling me that. <laughs> anyway, Alul also talked about proselytes and militants. How uh, they're always sure of themselves. Uh, because they're strong in numbers. Never have to question their, you know, these inseminated thoughts. They're provided these thoughts along with prepackaged Rebuttals just mention this, and they're provided by the Ideological Central Committee, so to speak. They're drunk on their own certainty because it's reinforced by the mob and its handlers. This, my friends, is the Twitter zoo. This is Facebook. These are people that you encounter out in your daily life who just must proselytize about their political religion, and they do so with such utter certainty, despite the bat shittery often coming from their snouts. Alul talked about all of this. There's more on this coming here in just a couple of minutes, but that is where it stems from. Actually, let's do that right now. This is from H.L. Mencken. I talked about him a couple episodes back. I've been reading a lot of his stuff. He has become one of my writing spirit animals, I do believe. Racist as hell. Despite that, I can still read him. Not everything he wrote had anything to do with race. 
I can ignore that. In fact, I can laugh at some of it because it was written in 1920. It was a different time. These were a different breed of people. Remember what I was talking about? We've made progress in the last hundred years. When I read some of the stuff that Mencken wrote on race in 1920, it doesn't scream, throw the rest of this out. No, it doesn't scream that at all. It screams that we have made progress. This is not what's considered common knowledge anymore. This is not considered acceptable at this point in time. It was then. I can dismiss it. Most people can't. Well, I'm not going to say that. A lot of people would love to see H.L. Mencken chuck down the cultural scrap heap with Looney Tunes. And eventually, Silver Spoons. Anyway, here's the quote. This is from H.L. Mencken again, uh, written in 1920 from a book called American Credo. It's fantastic. The meat of this book is the introduction. It, it, fantastic. It's really it's creatively done, I have to say. And Mencken is a fantastic writer. Anyway, this is what he had to say, and I'm quoting here. What lies beneath the boldness is not really an independent spirit, but merely a talent for crying with the pack. When the American is most dashingly assertive, it is a sure sign that he feels the pack behind him and hears its comforting baying and is well aware that his doctrine is approved. He's not a joiner for nothing. He joins something, whether it be a political party, a church, a fraternal order, or one of the idiotic movements that incessantly ravage the land because joining gives him a feeling of security because it makes him part of something larger and safer than he is himself. Because it gives him a chance to work off steam without running any risk. That last line is incredibly applicable in 2020. It gives him a chance to work off steam without running any risk. He's got the pack behind him. I guess that's a herd. Either way, he's got it behind him. He can be assertive. He can work off steam without running any risk. Does this remind you of any platforms we have today? Let me sit here and think. There's something I, I can't... I'm seeing blue and I'm seeing white and I'm seeing a little bird. What could it possibly be in 2020 that gives people a chance to work off steam without any risk, without running any personal risk, where they have an entire herd of people behind them to give them support, to give them the certainty, the moral certitude, in Mr. Alul's words, that the group is behind him and that he is right, that his doctrine, as Mencken just said, is approved of. Much of that, written in 1920, is quoted. It's almost, not, I'm not going to say it's verbatim, but the ideas are the same as Alul wrote 44 years later in this landmark book called Propaganda that I focused on last year. It's herd mentality. You're free to be stupid. You are freed to be a friggin' moron because you are a cell in a larger organism, a larger dumbed-down organism. An organism that is not only dumber than the collector of the individual cells comprising it, it's far dumber. But it's also certain. And there's something about certainty, this unshakable certainty <laughs> that comes with being maybe just a little bit less intelligent. That's not my judgment. All over the place. 
Dumb people are more certain of themselves than people are more educated or enlightened or have learned things, gained a certain amount of wisdom. As you learn more things, you become less certain about others. Thus, the certainty of the dumbed-down, lobotomized mob. Political atheism is risky in this context, and it's hard. Ideological agnosticism, I guess is what I'll call it, uh, it means at least offering the competing doctrines that they might have each have points to consider, right? It's not much less difficult in the Golden Age propaganda than political atheism. There are two different things. One is just rejecting everything. You're all full of shit. I'll find my own answers here. The other is agnosticism, where you at least consider that one or the other might be right, at least in certain areas. You would think that it would be easier to kind of, you know, look at both and sort of pick and choose. No, 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 not today. Also, doctrinaires also have some text or uh, you know, personal propagator by which to check their work against the doctrine. An independent man has no such luxury. It's difficult. He must always check himself against new information as best he can by himself. He can become unwittingly caught in political and ideological riptides. Talked about these before. I have been caught in them a few times. Once or twice, I didn't get myself out for years. In fact, I think I may be caught in one, or have been caught in one. I'm sort of trying to swim parallel to shore as we speak. Because we are not, as Alul repeatedly pointed out, immune to this. Even if we're aware of it, we can become caught in the agitation and propaganda snares ourselves. Even if we're trying to remain independent. And we're not living in a cave somewhere. Who's going to untangle you? You don't have that social group. You don't have that fraternity, that political fraternity of people. The fellowship who will help you cognitively untangle the propaganda, disinformation, and agitation from your mind. It's your job to do that. You have got to check it all the time. You've got to be aware of it. You've got to run it through filters. You've got to be able to critically think about your own work, your own thoughts, your own ideas. It's fucking exhausting. It's hard work. It's humbling. What it is, is the height of intellectual self-reliance. And as everybody knows, but never, <laughs> they never seem to apply to their own minds, is that self-reliance is far more difficult, as I said, but it's also more rewarding than intellectual dependency. And that's what the doctrinaire is. That's what the mobster is. He's intellectually dependent on his cognitive sustenance to come from above, from the central committee, to tell him what he thinks, to tell him what he believes. Who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. Has to be a good guy to bad guy. And a lot more on that coming up too. But it all comes from somewhere else. It's all coming from outside. Because it's easy and because it builds confidence and it makes you feel good. It makes you feel like you are part of something. That is evolutionary biology, social evolution, the need to belong, the need for validation. All of this stuff plays in. Validation junkies, I have a podcast on that too. 
It's one of my best. Highly recommend checking that out. More on Mencken right here. He continues to say, quote, The whole thinking of the country, thus, runs down a channel of mob emotion. There is no actual conflict of ideas, but only a succession of crazes. It is convenient to stand aloof from these crazes, and it is dangerous to oppose them. In no other country is there so ferocious a short way with dissenters. In no other is it socially so costly to heed the inner voice and be one's own man. Heed one's inner voice and be one's own man. It's dangerous here. It's socially unacceptable. You will find yourself ostracized. I'd like to point out and remind you that Mencken wrote this with his buddy back in 19-freaking-20. 100 years ago, exactly. This, is, this could be written today. And I like to, you know, I have this thought. You know, I, I imagine that I have liberals listening to this program still. <laughs> I'm silly sometimes. But I like to imagine people, well, we're independent. We're being our own people. Look at how we dress. Look at how we talk. Look at the nose ring. Look at my costume. I have a fish t-shirt on and dreadlocks. This is what we have substituted for individuality. Cognitive independence. Cognitive individuality. And prancing around doing an original dance out on the streets as you chant the same things as everyone else. That is not being your own man. That is being your own cartoon character. Your own stage character. What's going on inside of your mind is not original. You are not being an independent individual human being. If you are just carefully recrafting, cleverly recrafting, someone else's disseminated information, re-articulating external ideas that have been ejaculated your way. You are not. I'm going to repeat that. I'm going to say this as forcefully as I can. If you are regurgitating someone else's thoughts, someone else's ideas, someone else's laws and rules, you are not your own man. You are an imposter. You are playing dress up. If that's the case. Search your heart, Luke. You know it to be true. And if you want to go further, you want to find out how this is dangerous and what the effects are, look no further than the filthy agnostic, the centrist Americanus. Any nearby sticks are going to be picked up and swung by these partisan mobs, these ideological cults. Jonathan Haidt's post-hoc elephant snout is going to be deployed to maim and kill any solitary interloper whose heresy, heresy dares to reflect the mob's conformity by thinking and speaking for himself. This is all over social media. You filthy centrist. It's all over the place, man. Centrist is a slur now. You could easily take the, uh, the elephant reference there, swap Wild King metaphors, swap Wild Kingdom metaphors uh, right here and watch any number of the available YouTube videos showing chimpanzees attacking, brutalizing, and killing the lone wandering ape. 
who ventures too closely to the simian mob. So goes American politics. And Twitter is its zoo. It's on full display there. Keep a safe distance, kids. Also, independent thinkers make really bad allies. Independent thinkers aren't good at that. They can't be. It's almost impossible. And there's sometimes inconsistent friends as well because genuine independent honesty inevitably collides with blind loyalty and unquestioning support. You can't be honest and blindly loyal and unquestioningly supportive all the time if you're truly trying to be honest and independent. At some point, those two things are going to run into each other like locomotives. Poof! What do I do? Loyalty demands fealty to either the friend or the group. Honesty demands fealty to truth, telling the truth, seeking the truth. Those two things can be mutually exclusive. It's hard. When it comes right down to it, most people confuse these things and demand loyalty and support, but they want to disguise dishonesty. You all know what I'm talking about here. Who's the friend here? The guy who's honest, who will actually tell his friend what he thinks in order to help him as best he can, to authentically help him. Maybe keep him from making mistakes. Maybe make sure that he's checking himself properly. Or is it the guy that says, yep, uh who's always loyal, no matter what, who's always going to tell him what he wants to hear, And calling that support. Who is the real friend here? I've had this chat with a lot of people. And I tell you, I haven't haven't done a spreadsheet. Can't really quantify it. But I would think that 80% of the people that I have talked to want or expect their friend to be loyal and supportive rather than honest if there's a choice. I am not built that way. I can smell that inauthenticity a mile away like a 400-pound skunk. It stinks. I don't like it. I was doing stand-up. I had a guy who was a pretty good friend, I I guess. But he was a a well-established comedian, had toured globally, encouraged me to go do comedy, and kind of, sort of, tried to take me under his wing, at least from a distance, right? He watched some of my stuff, I think. He saw some of the stuff that I was writing, and he came and he sent me this, uh, no, it was a phone call. He called me up trying to be supportive, right? And the last thing he said to me is like, Todd, you're a great comedian. And like, what the hell? I suck. What the hell are you talking? You're blowing smoke up my ass at two, Brute? Don't lie to me. I know I'm not a great comedian. I have eyes. I have ears. Why don't you tell me how I can become one or how I can, how I can at least move in that direction? Once he said that, I know he was trying to help. I know he was trying to be that supportive friend. I don't need that. I don't respect that. If you're my friend, you're going to tell me what you think, what you see that I may not that's going to actually help me move forward. If I'm doing something right, great. But don't just sit there and give me this blanket bullshit statement. You're a Greek. I sucked. I knew I sucked. And after that, I didn't trust anything he ever said again. The, the friendship died. And, and by the same token, I've watched friendships die when I do that to people, when I tell them the truth, when I tell them exactly what I think, when they're expecting loyalty and support. 
They, they like cringe, shudder, and go into convulsions. <laughs> How can you actually tell me what, what, what you think? I would like you to tell me what I want you to think or what I'd like to think. It's not friendship. That is not friendship. Or if it is, it's not my variety of it. Give me honesty. I may be wrong, but you're damn sure going to get it from me. And if you don't want to know what I think, don't ask. I went over this with Chris, prior Chris. He's doing some writing, and he sent me a uh, page of stuff that he'd written, some fiction. Yeah, I've done a lot of writing. He asked me to kind of look it over, and I did. I went through, and I started going about like this editing process. I mean, in depth. I told him what I thought, what I really, really, really thought about it. And he about shit himself. It was so, like, amazing that somebody actually went through and did what he asked him to and was direct and honest about it. He knows what I think. And we've been through this before, he and I. We've had conversations, known him for 15 years, you know. We've had more conversations than with anybody. He knows, I think, that I will tell him. And if he doesn't want to know what I really think, if he's just looking for, you know, garden variety support... Like, oh, here's the smoke going up your butthole, Chris. If he's looking for that, he's not going to come to me to get it. But if he's actually asking, he knows I'll tell him. And it occurred to me after that happened (laughs) that I don't have anybody in my life that'll do that. It is so, so, so rare that people will be your friend and tell you what they think without telling you what they think you want to hear. There's nobody. Either nobody that really understands what it is I'm talking about or that isn't afraid that I'm going to get pissed off. And some of this is my own fault. I think I intimidate people sometimes. How? I don't understand. I'm a nice guy. (laughs) I'm a really nice guy. (laughs) So, yeah, I get that. Some of that's my own fault. But it kind of pissed me off. Like, I went through all, who who the hell's going to do that for me? Nobody. I got to do that for myself which is fine. It's going to be more original that way. It's something to think about. You know, that collision between honesty, loyalty, and uh, support. Anyway, all this leads me to believe, all this leads me, maybe obliquely, but it still leads me here, to what I've called Toddzilla's paradox. I am your friendly neighborhood Toddzilla. Behold my paradox. The only way to see the world clearly is by uncoupling identity-driven emotions from the situation or the outcome. The only way to see things clearly. Getting your ego's dog out of the fight. However, sapiens require social validation and a sense of belonging. A tribe. Any for-profit venture's goal is manufacturing and selling a product which creates customers who shackle their identity to said product. Love, it's what makes a Subaru. Come by one, hippie. That is a perfect example. It always comes to mind, tethering a product to the identity. And other people do this. It's not just cars. They do that with an ideological product as well. There's a book called Love Marks out there. It's terrifying. It's horrifying. It's disgusting. Everybody should read it. Terrible. Terrible what they... uh. So disconnection is the key here, but 
That runs against the narcissism of human nature. And disconnection might be enough if we were still only being pelted by, you know, marketing profiteers looking to exploit the Bernays brain hack. However, a hundred years later, after Bernays and Lippmann wrote their books, and uh, Mencken, hundred years later, algorithm technology has arrived and now individually crafts a pseudo-reality for you. It's not based on facts, it's based on your preference, determined by your data. Your online surfing habits, where you shop, they have your credit card data, they can track what you buy so they know how to market you. They know based on your purchases, based on your browsing history, they have a pretty good idea, probably better than you'd like to admit, what your political preferences are. They know how to get your attention with crafted, tailored content in your social media feeds to better increase the odds that you are going to click or, or, or better yet, share a piece of information, a page, a link, an ad. It's creepy how good they are at this. We can all look back to 2016 with the election and see how they started to do this with Cambridge Analytica. It's four years later. Nothing's been done. Do you suppose they haven't gotten better at it? Talked about this uh, in another podcast, I do believe. It's a pseudo-reality. It's not based on facts, based on preference, not to benefit we the cattle, oh no, uh, but for the uh, data cultivators whose customers, the data farmers, use it to fill the trough at which their insatiable consumerist bovine can feed. That's us. You are not the customer. You are the product being sold. Checkmate. That's the paradox. Disconnection is the key. We can't disconnect because we seek social validation and belonging to a group. And our identity is being tied. Our very sense of who we are is being tethered and sold right back to us. That, my friends, is a paradox. And this is the great war of this century. The flag beneath which all wars will be fought. Including climate change. Climate change falls underneath that umbrella. The informational warfare is what's keeping us from doing anything about it, even agreeing that it exists. That is the informational warfare. That is the reality warfare. The perceived reality by which we choose to look at the world. The chosen, not perceived, the chosen reality by which we choose to interpret the world. That falls under the great war of this century. Climate change falls beneath that. Nothing can be done about climate change or anything else until that is addressed. And nothing's being done. Not even awareness. There is, I know people like to talk about it. They, they oh, I know about disinformation and I know about targeted advertising. Fuck it. MAGA! Bernie, Bernie. It, the, the awareness level may be rising, but people still do not care. What do you do about that? Is Greta Thunberg, whatever the hell her name is, is she moving the needle at all with her little rant at the UN? Of course not. Nothing's being done and nothing can be done until people actually take responsibility for the maintenance and nourishment 
of their own mind. That is not happening. That is not happening. I always say this, man. You want, you want to have a utopian hope? You have a utopian vision for us as a, as a species for the planet and our future? Show me the path here. It doesn't exist as things stand right now. It doesn't. And it's because we cannot, will not, absolutely refuse in some cases to do the hard work of making sure that we are getting good information, making good choices with who we vote for and what we do with our own lives. The politicians aren't going to save you. Politicians are vampires. They feed on public opinion. Wherever you go, they're going to follow you. It's always been that way. Now, I talked last year about um, how people like to look at the media. There's some people that like to look at the media like, oh, you're, it's a big conspiracy to keep a stupid and docile. Bullshit. Bullshit. The media sells you what you want. It's capitalism. They sell it to you. They sell you bullshit because you like eating bullshit. It's the same with politicians, man. Ain't no politician that's going to come in and change things unless he's a demagogue a dictator, an autocrat. But I think people want that now. In fact, I know they do. I know they do. Totalitarian love is on the rise on both sides of the political spectrum in this damn country. Around the world. Because rational discourse has broken down to the point where nothing can get done in a democratic way via compromise, which is democracy. Sorry, I know I said the C word, compromise, but that's how a democracy works. Compromise. And since nothing can do that, nothing can be done in that field, in that realm, down that path. Because compromise is dead. All that matters is purity, ideological purity, owning the other. Now they want their change via totalitarian acts. Elizabeth Warren has a little list of things that she wants to do as soon as she takes office if she's elected. Those things, if they were done by Donald Trump, would have you screaming monarch. And if, if she does get elected, by some off chance, if she does win the election and that happens, the right is going to be screaming monarch. Queen! Oh, it's Queen Elizabeth! It's Queen Elizabeth! That's coming, isn't it? Queen Elizabeth, come on. Am I the first to say that? I should trademark that shit, huh? But as soon as that happens, the right's going to be screaming, autocrat, totalitarian, dictator, all of it, and they'll be right. Because nothing can get done now. So now it's moving from competing political parties, competing ideologies, competing extremism, to, what, competing totalitarians? Is that where we are? Yeah. Pretty much. Look, the great war of this century, it's the flag beneath which all other wars are going to be fought, including climate change. And in that battle, in this battle, in this environment, all hail the truly independent individualist. He who truly and defiantly stands on his own, stands on his own as his own man. He's that snarling unicorn you're going to see standing apart, who in his willingness to shun and provoke both frothing herds, is braver and more of a man 
than any of the other ones combined. God bless them. <laughs> Get into fantasy land here. If we could point a radio telescope toward this solitary man's uh, home galaxy, it might sound something like this. Well, you say you're woke, but the companies you work for, I mean, unbelievable. Apple, Amazon, Disney. If ISIS started a streaming service, you'd call your agent, wouldn't you? So if you do win an award tonight, don't use it as a, a platform to make a political speech, right? You're in no position to lecture the public about anything. You know nothing about the real world. Most of you spent less time in school than Greta Thunberg. So if you win, right? Come up, accept your little award, thank your agent and your God. And so, it's already three hours long. <laughs> that is Ricky Gervais. I played that when I came back to podcast a couple of weeks ago. I didn't really uh, get into the commentary on it, but that guy doing that, imagine this for a second. I know it's, it, we're, we're disconnected. Most of us aren't performers. Right, We don't know really what it's like to get up on stage and perform in front of a crowd. But to go in front of that crowd and say those words on national television, could you do that? Could you do that? Or would you wilt under the pressure, the peer pressure sort of being oozed up from the audience? Could you be that kind of a ballsy contrarian? To go up and say what you actually think in front of those people. I couldn't. I don't think. Uh -uh. <laughs> Probably not. That, I loved it. There's other people. There are other voices. There's too few of them. Dave Chappelle. Talked about this last year. He's one of them. He's basically given the, his finger to the establishment. The, the woke establishment. The woke establishment. Now, politically, right now, nobody embodies this and will pay the price for his independence like Justin Amash. I don't care what you think of Amash. He's a former Tea Party guy. I probably agree with one-fifth, maybe one-tenth of his politics. Love him, hate him, agree, disagree. He is the one guy I can think of at this point in time right off the top of my head, who is willing to stand up, say what he thinks. How do I know it's actually what he thinks? He's paying a price. He's suffering politically for this. He's not going to get reelected just north of here in Grand Rapids. He's going to be primaried to death. That's what they do. That's what the Democrats are going to be doing before long. But that is independence. That is thinking for oneself, getting up, saying what you think, be willing to pay the price for it. He's the only one. No, I can't say that. I can't say he's the only one. As much as I despise Daenerys and her suckerfish, Bernie Sanders probably deserves this category's Lifetime Achievement Award, doesn't he? I mean, I remember talking about Bernie with some friends back, uh, what, 20 years ago. And he was an obscure guy back then. But everybody knew that he was a socialist. He's an independent. He is a legitimate socialist. Now, back then, 20 years ago, a <laughs> socialist. <laughs> How do you even get elected up there? He's not ever going to be able to do anything. He didn't care. He was who he was. He probably could have had more political success if he decided to you know, move toward the mainstream of the Democratic Party. He didn't. He was who he was. No one has ever, that I'm aware of, had to question Bernie Sanders' authenticity. That he is his own man. He may have changed, may, may have said some stupid things. 
Maybe he's changed, I don't know, some viewpoints and policies. I, I really don't know. I don't know his, his record all that well. But either way, even if he has, I don't think you question that he actually came to that legitimately, organically, and authentically because he believes it. He is his own man. You don't have to like it. You don't have to agree with it. you got to respect that. Because it's so friggin' rare. And I think that was the crux of Hillary Simplex 2's criticisms of him in that documentary. No one liked him? Yeah. So? He didn't care. Vermont didn't send him to the Senate to be Mr. Congeniality. But, on the other hand, she was right. He couldn't get anything done. There is a mortal combat to be fought between your convictions, your authenticity, being your own man, and engaging in politics. How do you compromise with other people whose convictions are as strong as your own? I hate to break it to you, kids. I like you. You're my friends. But I, I, I got to tell you, it's one of those hard truths. There are not always answers. Uh, keep on the lookout for the episode talking about the man of morals versus the man of principle. It's another Mencken thing. Anyway, independent thinkers. People who are their own men. They're either a rare breed or they're an endangered species. I don't know which. Personally, I do not claim to be one. I don't. But I can tell you this. I definitely fucking aspire to be one. You know, when I talk about uh, independent thought and being your own man, it is hard work. I understand that. It involves and boils down to maintaining your own mind, drawing your own conclusions rather than relying upon some influencer's interpretation. That includes my own. It would be far better for you to go out and grab this book and grab Jonathan Haidt, you know, grab, uh, I don't know, Harari, Bernays, Lippmann, Mencken. Read the stuff for yourself, and draw your own conclusions. I know that's probably not going to happen. That's why people listen to podcasts. That's why people watch TV. It's hard work to do that. It's time-consuming. I understand that. Data overload. All of this stuff. I understand all of that. I really do. But if that's what you aspire to do, if you aspire to draw your own conclusions, think independently. You have to have the information. You have to be able to process it through your own mind. It's the only way, man. I've talked about the rights of man. That's Thomas Paine book, pamphlet. I mean, it was revolutionary. <laughs> it really was. And I've also read Thomas Jefferson. I've gone through and read the Federalist Papers for myself. Most of it, anyway, not all of it. And I was mentioned it a minute ago about this thing that I got from Mencken called uh, the, the sort of the collision and the conflict between the man of morals and the man of principle. Now, you would think, uh, it just did a cursory sort of observation that the man of morals and the man's man of principle, maybe they're the same thing. They're not. In fact, they are often mutually exclusive. The man of morals is the preacher. He's the fanatic. He's the zealot. He wants to tell you what is morally correct, right? He wants to impose his morality, his moral certitude, as Alul liked to say. He wants to impose that upon the herd. The man of principle, however, is the man of honor. 
That's what it was. It's not man of principle. It's the man of morals and the man of honor. Sorry for the misspeak there. Let me clarify that. All right. The man of honor has problems, and he's always going to stick to his principles. These are the people that typically garner the respect of people. We revere these people. I was talking about Justin Amash. You don't have to agree with him. He's a man of honor. He has his principles, and he's sticking to them even at the expense of being cast out, ostracized by his own party, and being voted out of office later on this year. Love him or hate him, Bernie Sanders, he's a man of honor. He has socialistic principles that he holds dear. He sticks to those. He's always stuck to those. And I was talking about the uh, uh, Richmond rally a couple episodes back. And it got me to thinking about the rights of man. It was a discussion, a sort of a back and forth that was going on between Burke and uh, Payne. Uh, back in, whenever it was, around the time of the uh, French Revolution, having a conflict or a controversy about whether or not laws were intended to be permanent for all time, or it, does each generation have uh, the right to determine the rules by which their society will live? Uh, Burke took the position that laws for, were for all time. They're inviolable. They cannot be changed. They cannot be altered. This is written in stone. These are the commandments put forth hundreds of years ago. We shall always follow those. And Payne took the opposite track. I equate this today to constitutional fundamentalism. All right? That's the Burkean approach. However, if that's your principle, you've got a collision here. If you consider yourself to support foundational American principles. Our Constitution was written as a living document. So if you support the Second Amendment based on its infallibility, are you really adhering at the same time to foundational American principles? That is a collision. It's not as easy as it sounds. What if your principles collide? I've got a lot more on this coming up. I know it sounds a little confusing. But to be perfectly honest with you, it's not. And finally, in the context of the rest of the stuff that I was talking about today, I cannot get through this without mentioning one more time data overload. This is being bombarded with information that cannot possibly be sorted through. Drowning in information constantly via the devices in our pockets, our computers, our televisions, advertising, all of it. It can paralyze the mind. People have been talking about this forever, forever. Marshall McLuhan's famous for it, understanding media. You know, you've got competing narratives. You've got competing facts and pseudo-facts. And it's always been easy to get confused and lost, to just give up, to drop out, to pick one, run with it. How much more difficult is that today? To sort through all of this stuff, decide what it is you think, where you're getting your information, than it was just 10 years ago. How about 20 years ago? How about 30? Holy Christ. I mean, they used propaganda to lure this country into World War I to garner public support more than 100 years ago. How is it exploiting us now that we're drowning at the bottom of Data Trench? And here's something else for you to think about, Mr. Independent Thinker. Would-be independent thinker. What if you come to realize you were wrong about something? Enter this realm carefully, my friends. I know from whence I speak. If you come to realize you're wrong about something, it's not a big deal 
if you've kept your politics and your opinions to yourself over the years, right? But yeah, it's 2020, not 1952. Social status, ego, standing within the virtual echo chamber. How many followers, in quotes, do you have? How much crow will you have to eat? Will they virtually lynch you? Isn't it far easier to just double down? Huh? Engage the post hoc elephant team. Pile shit upon shit. Jacques Alul talked about that as well from the perspective of a far simpler time in 1964. This has to be, has to be, not quantifiable, but it has to be a global pandemic by now, don't you think? I can speak directly to that, and so can Andrew Sullivan. In fact, he did when he uh, shuttered his blog a couple of years ago. I have much more on this uh, stuff coming. The Solitary Man, this is just the opening salvo. <laughs> you know, in a society of 300 plus million people, there is very, very little black and white. Almost everything is nuanced, maybe too much so. It gets so easy to just pick one, pick one or the other, run with it. <laughs> we were evolved to live in groups of maybe 150 people, not millions where our perception was line of sight, our relationships, organic. 350 million globally connected via what amounts to virtual realities of choice? What could possibly go wrong, huh? Escapingthecave.com, that's my website, and uh, fuck Twitter. Thank you ever so much for your patronage. I do appreciate the clicks. I've got at least one, possibly two episodes more coming on this. I'll try to get to those later on this week. Till then, so long.